Welcome to Accessible Art History, the podcast, the best place for art history lovers or anyone that is curious. My name is Annalisa, and I'm here to share an incredible work with you. Just a quick reminder before we get started. All sources and images will be posted on the Accessible Art History blog. You can find the link in the episode description as well as on our Instagram at accessible.art.history. Now that we have that out of the way, let's get started. For this week's episode, and the last episode of Season 1, we are going to be discussing one of the most famous pieces in the history of art, the Mask of Tutankhamun. It served as his funerary mask and was created around the time of his death in 1323 BCE. Howard Carter discovered it in his tomb in 1922, nearly 3,300 years after it was sealed. For many people around the world, this work represents the entire ancient Egyptian culture. Although you probably already know what the mask looks like, it's still important to discuss its appearance. This death mask represents Tutankhamun as the god Osiris, the lord of the underworld. It stands at about 1.8 feet tall and weighs a whopping 22 pounds. The beard alone makes up a quarter of the weight. The majority of the mask is made of gold, but there are semi-precious stones used for details. Lapis lazuli forms the brilliant blue stripes. This is an extremely expensive material. It had to be brought in from Afghanistan, so it was reserved for only the richest members of society. The brownish-red details are made of carnelian, and his eyes are made of obsidian. There are also a few pops of turquoise. Arguably, the most important details of the mask are the elements of kingship. It shows Tutankhamun as a powerful ruler in his own right. First is the nemes, or the cloth headdress. This is akin to a crown in later cultures. On the nemes are two animals, a cobra and a vulture. The cobra, known as a wajet, was a traditional symbol of Lower Egypt. The nekpet, or vulture, was a symbol of Upper Egypt. Together, they show that Tutankhamun was the pharaoh over both domains. Additionally, the long, tube-shaped beard was a traditional symbol of Egyptian pharaohs, dating back centuries. Because this piece served as a death mask, a protective spell is engraved into the shoulders and back. It comes from the Book of the Dead, which, if you remember from our last episode, was a holy text with instructions and spells on how to get through the afterlife. The particular passage on Tutankhamun's mask is from chapter 151. It reads, and a quick thank you to the trustees of the British Museum and their 1972 book, Treasures of Tutankhamun, for the translation, because I definitely don't know how to read hieroglyphics. Thy right eye is the night bark of the sun god. The left eye is the day bark. Thy eyebrows are those of Aeneid of the gods. Thy forehead is that of Anubis. The nape of the neck is thy that of Horus. Thy locks of hair are those of Ta Sokar. Thou art is front of Osiris, Tutankhamun. He ceased thanks to thee, thou guidest him to the godly ways, thou smite him for the confederates of Seth, so that he may overthrow thine enemies before the Aeneid of the gods in the great castle of the prince, which is in Heliopolis, the Osiris, the king of Upper Egypt, Nebekhepure, which was Tut's throne name, deceased, given life by Re. One strange detail of this mask is the pierced ears. This was almost always reserved for masks of women and children. There is also a partially erased cartouche on the interior of the piece. Does this mean it was originally intended for someone else? We'll discuss it later in the episode. When analyzing this mask, it's important to understand who Tutankhamun was. He was born around 1342 BCE, the son of Akhenaten and a woman deemed the Younger Lady by archaeologists that discovered her mummy. 
All three of these people were members of the 18th royal dynasty during the New Kingdom period. We discussed Akhenaten in our last podcast episode, so give it a listen if you haven't already. Despite advances in scientific technology, Egyptologists still don't have a name for the younger lady. Through DNA testing, it was determined that she was Akhenaten's full sister. They were both children of Pharaoh Amenhotep III and Queen T. Incest was quite common in the ancient Egyptian royal family because it mimicked the sacred union of Osiris and Isis. Due to this, Tutankhamun had a number of congenital issues, including a clubbed foot, a cleft palate, and scoliosis. As the only surviving son of Akhenaten, Tutankhamun inherited the throne when his father passed. However, he was only nine years old at the time, so a vizier named A technically ruled over Egypt. When Tutankhamun came of age, he set out to undo many of the changes his father's reign had brought about. Due to the numerous construction projects in the new capital of Armana, the Egyptian economy was in shambles. Tutankhamun moved the capital back to Thebes and did his best to bring in new trade deals to bring money back to the empire. There is also evidence that Tutankhamun embarked on military campaigns, possibly to expand the borders. Like his parents before him, Tutankhamun married his half-sister, Anaxunamun. They shared the same father, but Nefertiti was actually the mother of Anaxunamun. In his tomb, there are many images of the couple as co-rulers, indicating that he also made his half-sister his great royal wife. Additionally, two female fetuses were also buried with him. Testing showed that one was stillborn at five to six months of gestation, while the other made it to full term, but died shortly after birth. Both babies are the daughters of Tutankhamun and Anaxunamun. Sadly, Tutankhamun would only reign for about 10 years. He died around 1325 BCE at the age of 19. His reign was not remarkable, though that wasn't his fault. It was simply too short for him to be an effective ruler. He was buried hastily, more about that later, and was actually succeeded by his former vizier A. He was the last of his line, and it wasn't long before the 19th dynasty took over rule of Egypt. For the next 3,300 years, Tutankhamun's name faded into obscurity. Nobody remembered the boy king or his short reign, but on November 26, 1922, that all changed. For 10 years, Howard Carter and his team, financed by Lord George Herbert, the 5th Earl of Carnarvon, had excavated the Valley of the Kings in Egypt. Despite finding multiple sites associated with the 18th dynasty, Carnarvon decided that the 1922 season was going to be the last for their crew. Without a major find, it was becoming a money pit. There was some evidence in the area that there was a pharaoh's tomb that had yet to be discovered. In KV, the Valley of the Kings designation, number 54, there were a few items bearing Tutankhamun's cartouche that were found. Towards the end of the season, Carter decided to investigate a series of ancient huts that had been found a few years before. After clearing some debris, a water boy named Hussein Abdel Rousseau noticed a series of carved steps. This was the tomb of Tutankhamun. According to his notes, Carter said this about the discovery. This is courtesy of the Treasures of Tutankhamun, published by the Metropolitan Museum of Art. At first, I could see nothing, he wrote. The hot air escaping from the chamber causing the candle flame to flicker, but presently, as my eyes grew accustomed to the light, details of the room within emerged slowly from the mist, strange animals, statues, and gold. Everywhere the glint of gold. After a pause, Carnarvon asked, Can you see anything? And Carter replied, Yes, wonderful things. The discovery of King Tutankhamun's tomb was one of the biggest archaeological finds in history. It shook the world with the vast amounts of treasure and knowledge it unlocked. 
Despite Tutankhamun's status as pharaoh, his tomb was extremely small. In the show notes, there are links to a couple of YouTube videos that walk you through the layout of his tomb compared to those of other pharaohs. I highly recommend you check them out to understand just how small Tutankhamun's tomb was. The tomb itself was hastily decorated with protective spells and instructions from the Book of the Dead. There are even paint drips that run down the walls where the artist did not allow for it to dry before continuing on. But despite these details, it was filled with objects fit for a king. In total, there were 5,398 items in Tutankhamun's tomb. They varied between household items, jewels, gold, military equipment, funerary objects, just to name a few. It took Howard Carter a full 10 years to catalog everything. The fact that the tomb was intact in 1922 is, well, to be frank, a miracle. Many of the pharaohs of Egypt's final resting places were robbed in antiquity, but Tutankhamun's small tomb seemed to have work in his favor. When thieves broke into the antechamber, it seemed that they believed that was the only room. But if they had just looked a little farther, they would have found the trove of priceless treasure, which is very lucky for us. Next, we're going to talk about the man that discovered the tomb, Howard Carter. But first, let's take a quick break. Now that we're back, let's talk about the man that changed our views on Egyptology, Howard Carter. In some ways, it seems to be fate that he would discover the tomb of Tutankhamun. He was born on May 9, 1874 in Norfolk, England. Near his home was Didlington Hall. The owners had an incredible collection of ancient Egyptian artifacts that was open to the public and Carter would often visit. This sparked a love for the country that would persist throughout his life. In 1899, Carter started working as the chief inspector of the Egyptian Antiquity Service. This was a precursor to the Supreme Council of Antiquities that we know today. However, he resigned in 1905 after the Saqqara Affair. This was when a group of French tourists were acting disrespectfully at a site. The Egyptian guards attempted to keep the peace, but things got out of control. Carter sided with the guards, which displeased his British supervisors. Without the Saqqara affair, the dynamic duo of Carter and Carnarvon would have never come to be. They started working together in 1907. Digs occurred every season except when Europe was engulfed by World War I. After the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb, Carter traveled the world on a grand educational tour. After this, he worked for several museums as a collector and lecturer. Sadly, despite the find, he was never honored by the British Empire for his service to the humanities. When he passed from cancer in 1939, his funeral was only sparsely attended. Besides all of the amazing artifacts and treasure that came out of the tomb, something else did too. Egyptomania. Now, Egyptomania had been around before this. In fact, it started when Napoleon and the French army brought artifacts back from their battles to Western Europe. This inspired countless plays, works of art, operas, and even a unique architectural style. But with the discovery of Tut's tomb, Egyptomania truly swept the world and consumed the public's imagination. It was seen as romantic, mysterious, and exotic. One of the most interesting things to come out of this wave of Egyptomania is the 1932 movie The Mummy. It was a part of the Universal Monster movie series and starred the great Boris Karloff. The story takes place in 1921 and is about an archaeologist who accidentally awakens a mummy named Imhotep. 
He spends the film looking for his lost love, Anaxuna Moon. Sound familiar? It's a great movie, and I inspired the 1999 version starring Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz. Another element in the public's imagination is the supposed curse, because what's an ancient tomb without a curse? Despite popular belief, there is no evidence that the tomb had a spell on it. Although some tombs have been found with hieroglyphic curses etched into the wall, those tend to date from the Old Kingdom period, several centuries before Tutankhamun lived. In all honesty, the curse was invented by newspapers to sell more copies. To use modern terms, they were trying to go viral. However, there are a few mysterious deaths associated with the tomb, which perpetuated the curse rumor. For example, Lord Carnarvon died only five months after the discovery. After being bitten by a mosquito, he accidentally opened the bite with his shaving blade. He contracted blood poisoning as a result. George J. Gould I, a visitor, died on the French Riviera just a year after the tomb opened. He developed a fever. A.C. Mace, a member of the excavation team, died in 1928 from arsenic poisoning. And the Honorable Richard Bethel, Cardinal's secretary, died in 1929. Some reason someone smothered him. Another mysterious aspect of Tutankhamun's tomb is the question of the manner of his death. Both his mummy and that of his mother sustained some sort of head wound, but in 1922, technology didn't allow for further examination. So, this coupled with his hastily constructed and small tomb, and the fact that many of his artifacts were marked for a queen, led many people to believe that he and his mother were murdered. In some ways, it makes total sense. Akhenaten had completely uprooted society, so it wouldn't be surprising for someone to want to eliminate his line. In 2006, technology finally allowed for a more thorough examination of Tutankhamun's mummy, and the results were shocking. As it turns out, he wasn't murdered. The damage to his skull was done post-mortem, most likely when Carter tried to remove the mummy from the coffin. The embalming fluid had leaked out of his body and formed a glue-like substance. In addition, the CT scan was able to pinpoint a possible cause of death. Tutankhamun's leg was fractured, not long before his death. Scientists were able to determine this from the embalming fluid because it flowed into the break. This could have led to his death in one of two ways. It either became infected, which directly caused his downfall, or the infection wasn't that severe, but weakened his immune system enough for another disease to kill him. Regardless, Tutankhamun wasn't murdered. The discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb and the treasures inside is one of the most incredible archaeological finds in history. It changed our perspective on ancient Egyptian culture and created an air of mystery and glamour for study of era's past. With the end of this episode comes the end of our first season. What a wild ride! We covered over 30,000 years of history in just five episodes. Our second season starts next week, where we are traveling to ancient Greece and Rome. If you enjoyed our first season, please leave a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform. It helps out a ton in spreading the show to new people. Thank you in advance, and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Accessible Art History, the podcast. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at accessible.art.history for updates and keep an eye out for our next episode. They drop every Monday on your favorite podcast platform.